Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse number 8, reading through verse number 20 tonight. Scripture says this, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Here's how you'll know when you've come across this Messiah, this baby being born in Bethlehem. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, an unlikely place. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Familiar passage, but just notice this next scripture in particular. Verse 15, And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem. Somebody say, Let's go. And see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. When they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. This evening, I just want to kind of pull from verse 15 a little bit. And the shepherds, they were in a nearby field, but they determined within themselves to leave that field and to now go to Bethlehem. Because they were close, they were in proximity of the most monumental fulfillment of Messianic prophecy up to that point, the birth of Jesus Christ. But it wasn't enough to be in proximity of the promise. They wanted to go and participate in it. And my title tonight is In Proximity of Promise. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for this opportunity once again to be in your presence and in your house. We do not take it for granted. And I pray that you, as we open the bread of life, as we look into your word, that you administer by it and through it in us so that you might minister through us. Lord, whatever you want to do, our prayer is that it would be done in our lives, in my life, in our minds and spirits. God, accomplish whatever you see fit. Let your word not return again void as you promised. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you speak the name of Jesus one more time. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. God bless you. You can be seated tonight. I remember it was the 10th grade, and I had a math teacher. His name was uh, Mr. Langell. I believe he's still in the teaching profession, just moved on to bigger and better things besides 10th grade math, I suppose. He, uh, he was a unique teacher, great math teacher, unique in that he took one of those uh, retro overhead projectors. Um, but rather than use the transparency to project his lessons or the problems, he would actually write right on the glass with a dry erase marker. And he would, uh, you know, kind of put the problems up on the board that way and wipe it clean. And the perimeter of the glass, the, the gray plastic perimeter, was all sorts of 
dry erase colors. You know, it was, it was quite the sight to behold. But when it comes to math, you know, math is, there's not much nuance in math. Do you know what I mean? It's right or wrong. It's black and white. And, and I think that kind of resonates with me. It's how my mind, my mind works. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I did well in math. You move across the hall to the English class, and a lot more is open for interpretation, right? You can kind of bluff your way through English class a little bit because it's your interpretation. And, and history class or social studies, classes that, that do have some footing in facts and dates and things that are ironclad and black and white, even there you find a lot of nuance and, and, and a lot of uh, discussion and debate and, and opinion being inserted, but not so with math. No, one plus one, no matter what, what you might hear in today's culture, it's still two. Two plus two is four, and uh, that will never change. And so I remember in that math class, Mr. Langell, every once in a while, he would, he would appeal for an answer to a problem. And inevitably, somebody would raise their hand or, or say something out, or maybe he would pick somebody out of the class and ask what their answer was. And, and, and once in a while, somebody would get the answer wrong, as, as would, uh, you know, is inevitable to happen. And so when that would occur, he would cr- quickly correct them and say, that is not the right answer. To which sometimes the student would reply, well, at least I was close. Which again, this is math class. This is an English class. Okay, you can't just fake your way through this. It is right or it is wrong. And so Mr. Langell would retort or uh, rebut back and he would say, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. (laughs) To be honest, I had never really messed around with either of those things. I didn't quite get it the first time I heard it, but I clued in quickly. Close doesn't cut it. One decimal place is a big deal. You know, you go to your banking and you get the decimal place off one way, it's a good thing. The other way, it's bad, okay? One decimal place makes a big difference. One digit makes makes a big difference. So, So I remember that. It stands out in my mind. Being in proximity of the right answer doesn't cut it. And so we go to the story tonight, our opening text in Luke chapter 2. This week I, I, I expose myself once again to the, to the opening text of the Gospels and, and the Christmas story as we know it. And this one, this one detail of the story stood out to me. The fact that there were these shepherds. And, and I began to ponder the question, why shepherds at all? I mean, Jesus was going to announce it to somebody first besides Mary and Joseph. God was going to orchestrate it so that somebody could come across the Christ child. So, so why shepherds? And, and there's many that would speculate different answers. Some would say that selecting shepherds points ahead to the fact that Jesus would one day be known as the good shepherd. And so it was symbolic and it was a type and a shadow of what was to come. Some others would suggest that that shepherds were chosen because shepherds were kind of, they were, they were called lowly shepherds for a reason. They were kind of at the bottom rung of the societal ladder. Not many people liked shepherds and not many people wanted to be shepherds. They were kind of in the same class as the tax collectors, the publicans, the sinners. They, they were shepherds. It was a demanding jo- job. You were out at all hours of the day and night watching the flock. It really wasn't a good paying job and 
And it wasn't a part of high society, to be sure. And so some would say that he chose shepherds to illustrate the fact that he came to reach not just those that were at the top end of society, but he came to reach those lowly and the down and out. Not just the uttermost, but also the guttermost. Later, we know the wise men came, the magi, uh, several months, maybe even years later, coming across the young boy, the scripture would tell us. And uh, they were more of high society, but whatever end of the spectrum, Jesus came to save all of them, to seek and to save. The only qualification is that you are lost, which everybody is. So, so it doesn't matter. And maybe that's why shepherds. Maybe that's why. I think why shepherds, it, it's a good question, but it's just one question. The other question that, that I kind of move toward is, why these shepherds? Well, it, it maybe it's simplistic, but... For one, they were handy. You know, for all the deep thinkers, I apologize in advance. <laughs> Luke 2 and 8 tells us that they were in the same country. Other translations tell us that they were in a nearby field. And so, you know, perhaps it's the same reason why when I am feeling like getting a caffeine fix in the morning on my way to work, I pay a visit to the local Marysville Tim Hortons and not to the Timmy's over on the Woodstock Road where Prospect converges. You know, I don't, I don't go there. That's kind of out of my way on the way, on the way to the church in the morning. I, I come here. It's, it's handy. Somebody say they were close, right? But just because they were close, I would say that probably wasn't even enough. There, there are many others in proximity of this miracle, perhaps even other shepherds. And so why, why these guys? Well, I know that God sovereignly knew the names of each of these shepherds, and, and he knew their, their hearts, these lowly shepherds at the bottom rung of the societal ladder. He knew that, that they would go, and ultimately they would speak boldly to everyone about what had happened. They returned singing and praising God for what, what the angel had announced to them. They were humble. They they were, they were lowly, they were evangelistic, they were bold. These were wonderful qualities to be sure, and that was these shepherds. However, the thought occurred to me that it wasn't enough for God to just find shepherds, and, and it wasn't enough that they were willing to share boldly and passionately the news with, with Mary and Joseph, what they had seen, and with their friends when they get back home. It, it wasn't even enough that they were handy, but God needed someone, or in this case, several someones, to have enough spiritual curiosity and enough ambition to leave their current shepherding activities and, and to go and witness the glorious birth of the Messiah. They were perhaps most uniquely positioned to be picked by God, to be the first recipients of this glorious news because they heard the word of the Lord as given by the angel and they believed it to the point of acting upon it. Earlier on in the Christmas story, it was Elizabeth that said to Mary, you're blessed, Mary, because you believed that the Lord would do what he said he would do. And I liken these shepherds to that. They, they believed the word of the Lord to the point of acting upon it. They actually responded to the news by leaving their field and seeking out this baby in a manger. This is not a minor detail, but this is significant. Scripture, one more time, verse 15, it tells us that, that as, the, as it came to pass, as the angels were gone away into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let us now go even unto Bethlehem. We want to see 
that thing which has come to pass. We want to participate in that which the Lord hath made known unto us. This story kind of reminds me of Moses in Exodus chapter 3, who is also shepherding sheep for his father-in-law, Jethro, on the backside of the desert. You could say probably a field somewhere. And he sees this, this bush that is burning, but it's not consumed. He has an inclination that the supernatural is in his periphery. And the Bible says in Exodus 3 and 3 that, that he turns aside to see this miracle in progress. I'm going to stop up my routines in the middle of my day and go and see what, what God is doing because I desire to not just be in proximity of what God is doing. I desire to possess the promise that God is wanting to bring about in my life and in my world. They got so excited, these shepherds, that, that literally they left in the middle of their night shift. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that before, but you might not have a job to come back to the next day. So just think about all of this for a moment with me. These guys had just had an angelic visitation. Pretty cool, right? They had front row seats to this angelic choir. Talk about a Christmas concert. They didn't even have to leave the comfort of their own field. It was streamed on demand in 4K right to them. These shepherds, they had just received word of perhaps, again, the most monumental prophetic fulfillment concerning Israel's deliverer, the Messiah. And they had seen and received a lot up to this point in the story. They had just experienced a supernatural moment that eclipsed probably all other moments in their lives. And and it may have been easy for them to simply bask in what they had just witnessed. This angelic visitation, this word from God might have been enough to satiate their spiritual appetite. I mean, if we could just be honest for a moment, if, if we had a choir of angels even better than the choir of angels that we already had earlier in the service tonight, if we had a a literal choir of angels come and sing to us tonight, we would go home and we would tell everybody about it, how great of a service that we had and the building would be packed next weekend. I mean, that's, that's pretty monumental. That's my point. You see, we know the story well. We've seen it reenacted many times in Christmas Sunday school pageants. We have seen many children portraying these shepherds, donning cute little robes and bath towels tied around their heads. We take for granted what the shepherds did next. But don't skip over this quickly. The shepherds left their field and they went to Bethlehem to see this baby that had been born. They pressed pause long enough to go and experience the promise of His coming. Before we rush through this story and arrive at a nativity scene in our mind's eye, let us pause to consider for a moment that these shepherds could have chosen not to go. After all, they were busy working. They had lives and livelihoods. In order to see Jesus, they perhaps had to find somebody to fill in watching the sheep in the night watch. It was nighttime again, and, and, and this was a time when travel was more difficult and dangerous. But despite these and other factors, these shepherds pressed pause. They stopped up their routine, and they made an effort to have an encounter with the promised child, Jesus Christ. Not contented merely with supernatural, angelic visitations. Not content to merely know that the Messiah had come. That was good enough news by itself, but they didn't just want that. They did not let the warm and fuzzy feelings of knowing 
that it had happened just a few miles down the road from them, lulled them into complacency. You see, proximity was not enough for these shepherds. They desired to experience the promise themselves. Being in a nearby field, it is not the same as visiting the manger side. So they left the field and they said, let us now go to Bethlehem and see what God has told us about. I've come to understand in life that an encounter with Jesus often requires an interruption. A true encounter with Jesus often requires, on our part, an interruption. It was Einstein, right, that said doing the same things over and over again, it's, it's likened to insanity. To just carry on with the same routines day in and day out and expect suddenly something new and fresh and exciting and powerful in your life with God, it's, it's a fool's errand. I believe that it takes us like the shepherds, like Moses, pressing pause, stopping things up, and, and not being satisfied with being on the precipice or being on the perimeter or in proximity, but, but deciding and determining to possess the promise for ourselves. I think that there's many, many in our world today and perhaps many in, in the church context that find themselves in a similar position to the shepherds. Many that are close to something magnificent, just on the other side of greatness, but are pleased merely with proximity. You see, it's one thing to hear about miracles and to celebrate miracles. It's another thing to pursue the miraculous and pray the prayer of faith over the sick and seek God's face, just desiring to be used in that realm. It's one thing to know about Jesus. Many people do. Many read the scripture and, and many know theological facts about him. But it's another thing altogether to know Jesus for yourself. One is proximity. One is the promise of him for who he is. It's even possible, I would say, to be born again into the kingdom of God and to live just on the perimeter of God's will in proximity. But the message tonight is simply this. I don't want to live satisfied with proximity. But I desire, above all else, to experience the promise of God, which are yea and amen for his people. I desire to possess them, to experience them, to stand upon them, and to live in them. Proximity will not do. Being nearby will not do. But I want to move into them with tenacity, with intensity, and with intention tonight to possess the promises of God for me for our church, for my family. We need it, don't we? We need to possess what God has. We need the will of God above all else. More than just being nearby, I want to be involved and in the midst of it. In proximity of promise, it's not enough. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Following the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6, we read the famous passage where Jesus walks on the water he has sent his disciples on ahead to cross the Sea of Galilee while, while he stays behind to, sends, to send the, the people home. In Mark 6, 47, it begins this, this portion of the story. It tells us that when evening was come, the ship that the disciples were in, it was in the midst of the Sea of Galilee, and, and Jesus was alone on the land. And the Bible had told us earlier that he went and found a secluded place to pray. And when he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea. But this statement always gets me. 
It says he would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and they cried, they cried out. Again, that, that last statement in verse 48, if you'd put it back, I've always found it interesting that Jesus had intention to literally walk right past the ship that, that held the toiling, fretting, desperate disciples. And this is not some misinterpretation. You read pretty much any translation. And he intended to walk by them. The disciples, they were using all of their strength, toiling in rowing. But all of their human effort was not enough to bring them through this storm. Their best attempt at reaching their goal and, and getting beyond the storm, it was falling short. And so in compassion, Jesus comes walking toward them. But again, with no intention of stopping to help them. Jesus was in proximity. Somebody say proximity. But he did not join them automatically in their struggle. In his mercy, he put himself within reach, but, but would have allowed them to keep toiling if they so desired. But something in the hearts of these desperate disciples recognized that being close to Jesus is not enough. But they needed a companion on their vessel. And so they cried out in part for fear and in part desperate desire. And this is what happened, Mark 6, 51. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the winds began to cease. And they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure. And they wondered. They were so amazed and impressed by what Jesus had done for them. But it all occurred because, because they realized being in proximity of Jesus wouldn't suffice. But they needed to have him in their present reality. They needed to have him close and nearby and in their ship with them. Somebody say in proximity of the promise. It is not enough. Close is not close enough. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. We need Jesus in the midst of a year like we're having. As time is winding to a close, we need Jesus in our vessels. I don't want to come to church week after week and sit in padded pews and feel the presence of God and, and know that I am on the precipice of some, something great. No, know that I am in proximity of what God is doing in the earth. No, I don't want to just be on the perimeter, but I want to stand upon the promises of God and be right in the midst of what he is doing in our world in the last days. Somebody clap your hands for a moment if that's your heartbeat tonight. In proximity of the promise. It's not enough. We look to the book of Acts, just a couple of more examples and We'll conclude here. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, Luke begins the, the, this, this work by, by writing these words. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, referring, of course, to his gospel, the gospel of Luke. He said it began with, with what he did and what he taught until the day he was taken up. Somebody say the ascension. And after that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them for 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This, this all happened after the cross, before he ascended. Verse 4, And being assembled together with them on the Mount of Olives, getting ready to ascend to heaven, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, 
But they should wait for the promise of the Father. Somebody say the promise. Which saith he, ye have heard of me. You know what I'm talking about, guys. You, you know what I'm, what I'm pointing toward. You need to go and you need to tarry. The disciples and whoever else was gathered that day to witness the ascension of Jesus, they were charged to go back to Jerusalem and wait for that promise of the Father. In fact, Luke 24, 49, Luke records these words of Jesus. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Somebody say the promise. It's the outpouring of his spirit that he's talking about. He said, tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye ye be endued with this power, with this promise from on high. And so Jesus gives the command, not in Jerusalem, but, but in the region of Galilee over in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, pointing back toward Jerusalem and saying, you need to go there. Right? They're in Bethany, but he said, go to Jerusalem. And you got to understand that Jerusalem at this point was a hostile place for the believers. Remember, Jesus was just crucified on the outskirts of Jerusalem at Golgotha by the religious leaders. And, and so, you know, there probably was significant, significant trepidation for his followers to go and just gather in large numbers there in the city. But outside Jerusalem, in the region of Galilee, it seems that the believers were more than willing to gather. In fact, the Apostle Paul lets us know in 1 Corinthians 15 that at one point, likely, in my understanding, not the ascension, but before the ascension, that over 500 believers gathered at one time somewhere in Galilee. So, so Jerusalem, probably not a good idea at this point, but, but Galilee, no problem. There were many gatherings there even after the crucifixion. And so when it came time for Jesus to ascend, it's no wonder, Luke 24, I believe it's verse 50 or 51, it tells us specifically that Jesus leads his disciples not to Jerusalem, but he leads them to Bethany in Galilee for his ascension. A place outside Jerusalem, a place where he had ministered many times before. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were there. That's where he called Lazarus out of the grave. It was in Bethany, near where he ascended up on high. It was in Bethany that, that the disciples... At this, at this final moment of his earthly ministry, that they heard the Great Commission for one final time before he went up to heaven. It was go, and it was go preach. But before it was go preach, he said, go and tarry in Jerusalem. Because I'm going to send the promise to you in Jerusalem. Leave where you are and, and go back to that place, a place not unfamiliar to you, maybe a little hostile right now, but, but leave Bethany and go to Jerusalem. Do you get the picture? Now, now, just before we move on, can you just pause with me and imagine what it was like to have front row seats for this moment of time, this, this ascension of the Messiah. These guys had seen Jesus do many miracles, but, but now, essentially, they're, they're watching their master skydive in reverse. I thought that would get a few more laughs, but it's fine. <laughs> Walking on water, it was amazing, but, but now Jesus is flying. <laughs> we don't talk about, you know, the, the moment where Jesus flew, but it kinda, it's kind of there. And just seeing that, you know, that would have been a highlight moment for their lives, no doubt. But their work was not done. They had given up everything to follow him. They had left family and fishing boats alike. 
But the whole purpose for which he called them was to carry on his message after he was gone. He said in John 14, 12, greater works than these shall ye do because I go away to my Father. So this was not the culmination or the closing chapter. This was just the beginning for his people, for his disciples. Hearing his teaching and seeing his miracles and and now witnessing this ascension was not the culmination. They were the culmination. They were to bring about the culmination of his ministry by seeing the church come into being on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And we know that. But hear me tonight and let me remind us that it involved these disciples leaving that mountain as simple as this might be leaving the Mount of Olives in Bethany and heading back to Jerusalem to hostile territory perhaps and praying and waiting and tarrying for the promise that Jesus had said would come to them. And what's interesting to me, we know it's in the same region, but the scripture is very clear. And geographically, it is very clear. John eleven eighteen 18 says that Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem. Somebody say it was close. They were in proximity. But being in proximity of the promise, it is not enough. It wasn't a lofty ask on the part of Jesus. It was just a few miles down the road. But but Jesus wanted them to do more than just be close to what the culmination was meant to be. He desired more for them than to just follow him for for a handful of months, up to three years or so, and then just drop it at the last chapter before the next chapter would begin. He wanted them to possess the promise of the Father. It involved these men and these women interrupting their routines once again. It involved them going to an upper room in Jerusalem and tarrying for what would end up being a 10-day prayer meeting until God poured out His Spirit. There were some, perhaps, that were happy to have known Jesus and to have seen His miracles. Some were maybe happy with what they thought was the climax of His life, this ascension into heaven. But there were those not contented to have come so far with Jesus, but then miss the whole point of the journey. There were those that that were not contented to walk three years and then drop it at the last curtain. The whole point was to receive this promise and be filled with the Spirit of God, being in proximity of the promise. What a shame it would have been if they would have stopped in Bethany and gone back about their business. But thank God we're all here tonight as a result of those 120 going to Jerusalem like he said and tarrying in an upper room and waiting for for God to pour out his spirit upon all flesh for the very first time. In proximity of the promise is not enough. Close is not close enough. Music, come back and join me tonight. Because I close tonight. And I don't know where all this message will be going But let me just tell somebody, if you've never received the gift of the Holy Ghost, whether you're in the sanctuary tonight or whether you're watching by way of internet now or later, it is God's will that you you not just know about Jesus, that you just not have a few biblical or theological facts memorized, but, but it is God's will that you move beyond just being in proximity of his promises and move into possessing his promises for yourself. 
I've come to tell you that the Holy Ghost is still for people in the 21st century. God still desires to pour out his spirit. God still desires to fill us to overflowing. Come on, we'll know what happens when we begin to speak in that heavenly language. Anybody still believe that today? That God still pours out his spirit upon all flesh. It's the promise. It's the promise. And so I close tonight by speaking to a people who are also in proximity of a promise. And that is that the Lord is coming back for his church. And it will happen soon. Sooner than you think. For in an hour that you think not, that's when the Son of Man cometh. Somebody say in proximity of promise. I'm I'm a baseball fan. Or at least I was a baseball fan until years of disappointment set in. Thanks, Toronto. Who am I kidding? I'll jump on the bandwagon again. I don't think I watched a full basketball game until the Raptors last year. Suddenly, a lot of Canadians become basketball fans, you know. But I'm a baseball fan, and I had always assumed that the phrase, the home stretch, was a baseball term. I guess I knew that there was a home plate I had heard about the seventh inning stretch, and so the home stretch, I don't know, it just made sense to me. Lo and behold, the home stretch does not come from baseball, but it actually comes from NASCAR. Because the home stretch, it is, it is the straight part of a racetrack from that last turn to the finish line. That is what the home stretch is. Now, I didn't know much about NASCAR, but You know, races, they're often 500 miles. Talladega Super Speedway, for example, it has a track that is 2.66 miles long. I think that's in Alabama. I remember one time, I I remember driving by it, and just kind of on the horizon, this, this towering, wide, expansive set of bleachers just appears. I never seen anything quite as big in, in terms of a sporting arena. But 2.66 miles long, that's the track there at Talladega. This equates to 187.97 times around the track, which means you probably technically should go a few feet past the finish line, but I think they just rounded up to 188, you know. If you're a NASCAR fan, you can tell me later. So we say the home stretch. The home stretch, it refers to that last quarter of one trip around the track. Less than one mile out of 500. It is the point where the end is finally in sight and peak performance is required. It's that time in the race when, as a driver, you would put the pedal to the floorboards and give it absolutely everything you've got. You're not worried about any upcoming turns. You're not trying to conserve any fuel, right? If you have held anything back up to this point, you might as well just exhaust it. Exhaust every resource you have because in just a few more moments, it will all be over and there will be no opportunity to try again. The home stretch, of course, it's become an English idiom that essentially means the final phase of any endeavor, right? It's, it's the last hour of a shift at work. And we're in the home stretch, guys. It's, it's the last class in a school day. It's the last few days of a political campaign. It's the last few miles of a road trip. 
And I've just come, I know it's, we've kind of gone on a journey through the word tonight, but as believers, I've just come to remind us that we're on a journey. And we are making our way to our eternal home, there to live forever with the saints of all the ages and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. I still believe that. But he has gone to prepare a place for us. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Let me remind us, I know we know it, but there's a reason that, that the first century believers would say, Maranatha, our Lord cometh. It was this constant reminder to one another about the coming of the Lord and what ultimately we live all of this for. Eternity. There's a reason that Paul told us when he talked about the rapture and the dead in Christ, he said, you need to comfort one another with these words. We need to talk about it. That heaven is our destination. That God has prepared a mansion for us and it's not in Jerusalem. We don't have to go the short route from Bethany to Jerusalem, but we are on our way to a new Jerusalem. That's where we're headed. That's the promise that God has intended for us to possess for ourselves as people of God. And like never before, as we witness the signs of the time swirling around us, we can see that the coming of the Lord is close at hand. We are in proximity of the promise, but being in proximity and not possessing, what a shame that would be. I don't want to come all this way and then for one reason or another trip up at the finish line. Paul wrote to the Galatians in 5 and 7. He said, at one point you did run well. So what did hinder you? Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? You've fallen off track somewhere, people of God. Because it's not whether or not you start the race strong. It's whether or not you finish the race strong. They've done studies various insurance companies and they have done these experiments and they have concluded that a large portion of car accidents they happen within a few miles of a person's home when they're almost home there's different percentages i mean 33% within 1 mile they say 52% within a 5 mile radius of your home you know it kind of makes sense i guess most people drive within a 5 mile radius of their home and so it would reason that if they're going to get in an accident it would probably happen there so Excuse the stats slightly, but, but it is true, isn't it? That when you've been on a long trip headed home and you start getting close and, you know, you kind of have to start fighting a little harder against sleep and you start feeling a little too comfortable because the surroundings begin getting a little bit familiar. When you're almost home, you've got to pay extra close attention. Evidently, according to the statistics, we know that the closer you are to home, the more you kind of need to shake yourself and pay attention because you don't want to wreck. I remember a few years ago I was exposed to these, what they call don't celebrate too early videos. Have you ever heard of those on YouTube? They're really funny. You should look them up later. You know, there's like, there's like these cyclists and they're, they're pedaling and, and he turns around. He's in the home stretch. Nobody's around him. There's this one guy. Oh, man, what a sorry, sorry guy this is. Starts pumping his fist, celebrating his victory before he crosses the finish line, and he wipes out. And like three or four other cyclists nearly run over him. 
Look them up. They're great. There's so many. These, there's runners. They just, there's this one guy, he's like, he's, he's, he knows he's in first place, and he just starts going like this, like, where are y'all at? And then this one guy runs right past him to the finish line. There's this one, it was a soccer player. He kicks the ball, it hits the crossbar. And the goalie, realizing that the ball didn't go in the net, he starts like, he slides to his knees like soccer players like to do. Starts pumping his fist. Little did he know there's some backspin on the ball and it starts just slowly creeping toward the net. Don't celebrate too early. Because when the finish line is in view, it can be a little bit easy to just let down your guard, can it? When it feels like you're almost there, you can just kind of relax a little bit, and that is the exact opposite of what Jesus told us to do. He told us many times, you've got to be vigilant. You've got to be diligent. You've you've got to make sure that you stay awake. Don't be like those foolish virgins that let their oils deplete, uh, their lamps deplete of oil, rather. Don't don't fall asleep without without being in touch with with God, the, the supplier of the oil. Don't get cavalier. Don't get careless. See, the the time when you're almost at the finish line is the time to focus in and give it everything you've got and exhaust all resources and and lean into the kingdom of God like you never had before. Witness to those around you like you never had before. Get in the Word and teach the Word of God to others like you never had before. It is time to go all in. Because Jesus is coming soon. I know. As you stand together with me, I'm done. I know. The Bible talks about a great falling away as we get closer to the coming of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But as for me, I refuse to be in that number. I have determined to finish this thing strong. I have determined that I am going to make it and I'm going to move across that finish line. You know, I don't care if I limp across the finish line. I just want to make it. But I've determined that I'm going to run this race as strong as I can and make it because I don't want to be in proximity of the greatest promise ever to be realized in the human race. I don't want to be on the perimeter looking from the outside in. I want to possess it for myself. I know in Revelation 12 and 12, it tells us that the devil has come down to earth with great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. In other words, Satan understands that Jesus is coming back soon, and he will do whatever he can to send you into the ditch and keep you from serving God. And as we heard a couple of weeks ago, he will do what he can to wear you out and to wear you down. But I refuse to let the devil take me out. I have determined that I am going to make it. I don't want to be in proximity on the padded seat of a pew every Sunday and then miss the rapture. I want to possess it for myself. I wonder if you would just raise your hands here tonight. Come on, somebody determine in your own heart, in your own spirit, in your own words, God, I'm going to make it. I know what the enemy's intentions are in this last day, but I am going to make it. I am going to stand strong and firm on the promise of the Word of God. I am not going to be swayed or strayed to the left or to the right, but like a flint, my face is pointed toward heaven. Come on, God has great things in store. 
obviously and of course in eternity, but God has great things in store before we get there. And I, I want to be one that, that doesn't just sit on the perimeter, just waiting idly until God comes back. But I like those shepherds, and, and I like those disciples in, in Bethany. I want to move toward the promise of God. Whatever his will is, I want all of it. Whatever you want to do in me, through me, God, let it be in my life. I don't want to be in proximity of promise. I want to possess promise in my life. Oh, I just wish you would lift your voice here. I'm done. I, I've, I've, I've exhausted my notes. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all through, but God is not through right now. I would like to just make an appeal. We're going to open this altar, and like we said this morning, we have room to accommodate not everybody, but if we are masked, we can be within a meter or three feet of one another that is appropriate with the guidelines. And so a multifaceted altar call tonight because maybe there's somebody here, maybe you're watching online tonight. God's next step for you. He desires to fill you with the, with the power of his spirit, the promise that was poured out the very first day of church history is still available to anybody, to the whosoever will, here in the 21st century. And so maybe you've been on the precipice, you've been on the outside kind of wondering, but, but, but God tonight would, would ask you to step in and to seek Him and to open your heart to receive the promise of His Spirit tonight. And for anybody else, I just feel like God wants to refresh and renew in our minds again, in our spirits again, what all of this really is for. We are at the close of time, and this hour demands our very best. And so I just want to open this altar. They're going to begin to sing, but I wonder if we can just come with, with our hearts, our hands, and our voices lifted. I believe that God can pour out His Spirit in this service tonight. Do you believe that? I believe that God can begin to flow. Why don't we just begin, if you feel the step out, to just step around this altar just to begin to seek God, to pray. I want to stand on the promise of God in the name of Jesus.